Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to you, you Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. Good morning. Thank you for being here with us. We're so delighted to see each and every one of you here. And of course, those who are joining us online, thank you for joining us as well. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we do come to your word now. We ask that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And pray that your Holy Spirit might inspire and illuminate our hearts and minds to receive your word, to understand it, be changed by it. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, many of you know, or even if you don't know, you're about to know that I'm a big fan of British murder mysteries. Books, TV shows, episodes, movies, all of it. I love it. And I say British because it's a little different than American murder mysteries. I don't know if you've thought about the differences between them like I have, probably not. But in an American murder mystery, usually the plot revolves around some epic, heroic detective who by the power of his own will and his own effort will solve the crime. But British murder mysteries are a little different than that. Bosch, if you've seen that show, is a good example of American murder mystery show. But British murder mysteries are all about gathering the clues and the evidence and the information and bringing it all together until at the very end, the conclusion of who did it is unavoidable and obvious. And everyone goes, oh, of course I've seen, I know who did it, it's clear. And for me, it's hard for me to go back and watch even my favorite British murder mystery shows and watch them again because from the very beginning, now that you know what happened, it's all obvious and it all seems unavoidable and clear. And so it doesn't seem as exciting. And I say all that only to say we're coming now to the conclusion of Acts and the sermon series on Acts that we've been preaching since the beginning of the spring. And today we have Paul's trial before King Agrippa and before Festus. And next week, Tim will conclude our sermon series with Paul's shipwreck on his way to go meet Caesar. And if you haven't been paying attention, the way that we began Acts should make what we end up here today and next week seem like unavoidable conclusions, like obvious and self-evident places that Paul should be on trial before the political powers of the world that Paul should then be shipwrecked and almost lose everything and yet not seem like unavoidable, obvious conclusions. Why do I say that? Well, to answer that question, three things today. Conflict, confidence, and a new song. Conflict, confidence, and a new song. 
I wanted to go with C for that last one there, but you know, canticles and chorus just didn't really sound, it sounded cheesy, so I didn't want to do that. So first, conflict. Here in Acts chapter 25 and 26, Paul is obviously not in a happy-go-lucky situation. We didn't preach on this, but in Acts 21, a prophet comes to Paul and says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound up, put in prison in Jerusalem. But Paul believes that Christ is calling him to go to Jerusalem, so he goes anyway. When he gets to Jerusalem, they try to kill him while he's there, and he, escape, he escapes that plot. But then he's taken and put in prison by the Roman governor named Felix, and he's been on trial. And Felix will just basically, at a whim, bring him out of prison and be like, talk to me, Paul, and then send him back into prison. And now he's been actually in prison for two years. And this prison isn't like some quaint white-collar joint where he can get his master's degree on the spare time. This place is, he's in chains. It's dark. It's dank. The food's not great. It's not good. And now here in Acts chapter 25, Paul is being dragged before a new Roman governor who doesn't even understand his charges or know why he's there. His name is Festus and also now before the Jewish king Agrippa. And on this day, all the heads of the political powers of the day come forward. King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, Luke says they come in all of their pomp, putting on a show of their earthly power and their status and significance. And all the members of high society come and join. They want to hear Paul speak and defend himself. And the military leaders are there. And the people that are accusing Paul as well, the Jewish leaders. And Paul basically has one shot to explain and defend his faith, his faith before the powers of the world gathered around him. And if you've been paying attention to our Acts series as we've gone through it, then this scene here, someone defending their faith before the powers of the city or the country, in prison and in chains, this is not actually a new scene. This is just the biggest one we've had yet with the king and with the Roman ruler. In fact, since the beginning of Acts, we've been heading in this direction. Remember how Luke concludes his gospel and how he also begins Acts? Do you remember? Both things are the ascension of Jesus. Jesus ascending from earth into heaven. Why? Why does Luke have that? Why does he mention it twice? Why is that a conclusion of the gospel of Luke and also the beginning of Acts? Because Jesus' ascension into heaven is Jesus ascending onto his throne to rule over the world. That's the picture. That's the motif. And that's the image. Jesus is setting himself down upon his throne to rule the world and to direct his people on his mission. There's a famous arch in Rome, actually, that was made and put up when Emperor Trajan became emperor over Rome. And there's a, a relief on it right in the center. You know what this relief is? It's of Trajan, the emperor, ascending onto the clouds. Exactly the same image, exactly the same motif to suggest that Trajan is now emperor over the known world, over the Roman Empire. And of course, those two images, they're in conflict with one another, aren't they? They both can't be rulers of the world. In Jesus' ascension, he is claiming ownership over every king, over every tribe, over every nation, over every person, over the entire world. And the smaller kings, like King Agrippa here, like Trajan, the smaller kings then and today, they don't like that. They don't like someone else having power. They don't like their people having an allegiance that's higher than them. It brings them into conflict. It must. It has to. And you know, if you don't find yourself in conflict with some parts of our culture, 
If you don't find yourself in conflict with the political powers of this world and this country, then you may wonder if your first allegiance hasn't been compromised by a lesser and smaller king. Several years ago, Tim preached a sermon during an election year. And he pointed out in the sermon that both candidates that were on offer for us to vote for in the United States of America, both of them were lesser kings. He didn't argue for one or the other, but just that they were both less than Jesus, not as good as Jesus, not using their power in the way that Jesus would use them. And I was in the narthex sitting out there waiting to come do the affirmation of faith. And some couple that I did not know, hadn't seen before, they came bursting out in the middle of the sermon into the narthex and they spotted me wearing my robe and like a magnet, they came right over to me. And for two minutes, they chewed me out for not supporting their candidate. You know, if I was snarky enough or sharp enough, I would have said, oh, did your candidate return from the dead and ascend to heaven? Did I miss that? But you know, that's the kind of the thing that you think of while you're in the shower the next day and you go, ah, that was what I should have said. But you know, we should not be surprised. If you follow Jesus, if you're united to him by faith and by baptism, then we should not be surprised if we find ourselves out of step with the culture around us and out of step with the political parties, regardless of which one they are in our life and in our country. Because true allegiance to Jesus and to Jesus' mission means that you are going to follow a different king with a different message. And not only do you not have to be co-opted by the political powers of the day, you shouldn't be. And in the midst of this conflict, Paul here in Acts 25 is in conflict with the political powers of his day. They are there accusing him, telling him to defend himself. And notice what he does. He's bold and he's confident and he addresses these people who could easily, if he says the wrong thing, put him to death in a moment. He addresses the king directly. And in verse 22, he makes it clear that he isn't overawed by all the powerful people with status in the room around him. He says that he addresses both the great and the small. The words that he is saying is not just for the powerful people, they're for the servants that are in the room as well. He implies in verse 19 that the most important thing he can do is obey obey the heavenly call that he has received on the road to Damascus, even if it puts him in conflict with his earthly rulers like King Agrippa and like Festus. And where does his confidence come from? I don't know if I would be as confident standing there in chains like Paul was. Well, certainly Paul's been here before, hasn't he? He's been in prison before. He's had to defend himself before. And certainly God has given Paul great rhetorical gifts. But I think there are two things here that Paul also leans on that we also can lean on. First is what Paul stresses in his defense. The reason that Paul is on trial by the Jewish leaders is because Paul is defending the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul focuses on and argues for. It's not printed here, but in verses five through eight, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And that's his claim in verse 23, that Christ is the first to rise again from the dead. And not only that, but I think there's something that's going on in the structure of this passage that Luke intends to do. Because Paul's trial here is meant to remind us of another trial. This is the end of the book of Acts. And we saw another trial at the end of the book of Luke. And Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. I didn't mention this before, but King Agrippa, his name is Herod, Herod II. He's King Herod. He's the great grandson of the Herod who was at Jesus' trial. So we have Paul here now standing in Jerusalem under trial before the Roman governor and before King Herod. 
And that should remind us of what's supposed to happen. Jesus was crucified when this happened to him. Is Paul about to be crucified? But Paul knows something that you know and that I know if you've read through the rest of the book of Luke and through Acts, that death, that Jesus' crucifixion did not stop him. And Paul's argument here in verse 23, actually, everything he says, I don't know if you caught this or not, but it's basically the exact same words and the exact same message that Jesus said that his disciples would preach in Luke chapter 24. They're basically the same words. You see, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was not just a nice idea, a wonderful ideal, or a religious sentiment. You see, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, it was the defining moment of all history and all time. It was the fulfillment of everything that came before from the Old Testament. That's what he says here in verse 22. It is the fulfillment and culmination of everything that Moses and the prophets talked about. And it is the beginning of a new reality for his people, for the Jews, but also a new reality for the Gentiles like Festus and the Roman rulers, for the whole world, in fact. What Paul is saying, what Paul believes in Jesus' resurrection, that the former things have come to pass. They're over. They're done. And God has declared a new reality, a new creation that he is creating in the world and creating even today. And that was Paul's confidence. That death didn't even stop Jesus. How could it stop Jesus' mission? Jesus' resurrection and ascension were public events, objective, historical acts of God in the world to change the world. They were known. That's what Paul says to Agrippa here in verse 26. These things that have been happening, they're not some mystic, quiet mystery over here in some small sect. They were not hidden in a corner, he says to Agrippa. They were going on in Jerusalem. Everybody knows about it. You know about this, Agrippa. But I think there's another reason for Paul's confidence. It isn't simply a rational, historical, or religious fact that he's holding on to. Jesus' resurrection became a personal reordering of Paul's own entire life and world. What Jesus did on earth in time and history became for Paul what Jesus had done for Paul himself. That's why in the middle of his defense here, it was in parentheses in your reading, but Paul relates his conversion story again. This is the third time we've heard this in the book of Acts. What's happening here is the subjective reality and subjective personal experience of Paul is being united to the objective historical realities of what Jesus has done, and they're becoming the same reality. The resurrected Christ is the one who's calling Paul personally, individually, and Paul cannot escape him. And all that Paul has done to resist and persecute and hurt Jesus and his followers, yet here is Jesus in Paul's life, not rejecting him, but pursuing him, redeeming him, and freeing him, allowing Paul to become what Jesus is asking him to be, a witness to the world of God's unfathomable grace and love and forgiveness for Paul and for you. And for me. So the question is Has Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and ascended, has he become your personal reality? Do you know him not just as a historical fact or a wonderful, inspiring idea, but as the living, breathing, dynamic person that he is? Has he become not just king over all, but king over you?
He was for Paul. Paul knew a God who forgave him and conquered his sin at the cross who went to death and rose again and became king of the universe. And it gave him confidence to say what he says here in this room, in this place, in verse 29, that even in his position, chained, imprisoned, on trial, at the bottom of society, that he can say to all of his, his social betters and the people with all the power that he wished that all of them were like him, except for the chains. He wanted all of them to have a living, dynamic relationship with the God of the universe, to have a participation in the new world that God is bringing into existence. You see, Jesus taking Paul and proclaiming Jesus' reign before the earthly powers of the world, that's an unavoidable conclusion because of what Jesus has done and how Acts begins. And that Paul who experienced what he experienced is confidently proclaiming, despite the way things looked, him standing in chains, that the gospel itself and Jesus' mission wasn't actually in chains. That God, in fact, was advancing, that Rome actually was getting out of the way and fading away. And Jesus' kingdom was coming in. That, too, is an unavoidable conclusion from the way that Acts begins and what Jesus has done and how he has done it in the world and in Paul's life. And that had given Paul a new song to sing. You know, Paul later on, when he was in a different prison, <laughs> wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in chapter 5 of that letter, he said to the church and to us, we should sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to each other and make melody to God in our heart. I think what Paul was referencing there in Ephesians chapter 5 is our Old Testament reading that Missy read from us from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is all about Jesus and what he is doing in the world, transforming the world. And I hope you saw that or listened to it when Missy was reading it. But it's more than just what God is doing in the world through Jesus. It's also exactly what God had done through Jesus in Paul's own life. Jesus had called Paul. Jesus had took Paul and made Paul a bringer of light to the nations and the Gentiles. Jesus had brought Paul out of his own prison. He had took the former Saul, who was the persecutor and murderer of Christians, and turned him into a new creation, into Paul, no longer Saul. See, what Jesus had done in Paul, he's also doing in the world. He's also doing in your life. And Isaiah 42 says, what should we do about that? Sing a new song. How should we respond? Sing a new song. A couple of years ago, someone introduced me to recut movie trailers. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but generally what you do is you take perhaps like a comedy, maybe even a ridiculous comedy like Dumb and Dumber. Have you seen Dumb and Dumber? Apparently not. Okay. And uh, you recut scenes from that movie and you put on an ominous soundtrack. Then you turn a couple of scenes to black and white and change some of the lighting. And suddenly, to the unassuming watcher watching this new recut trailer for Dumb and Dumber, it seems like a horrific, terrifying horror movie. My favorite of these, and you really need to go home and watch this on YouTube later today, is Mrs. Doubtfire. They take Mrs. Doubtfire and essentially turn it into Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal Lecter. In the scene when Robin Williams is taking the fake face of Mrs. Doubtfire, oh, it's just, I can't even do justice to it. You have to go home and watch this. But in watching all these, it made me think and made me realize that how simple just changing the song changes the entire perspective of what you're watching. Simply singing a different song over the same things 
can change your perspective of reality. I mean, go watch the important scenes in Jaws without the music. The suspense is gone. It becomes a B-rate comedy. The song makes all the difference. And I don't know about you, but it seems like the song that we've been singing over the last year and a half is a song of fear. Fear of COVID. Fear of the economy. Fear of an overreaching government. Fear of your neighbor. Fear of what's happening around the world. Fear of what's happening in this country. Fear of sustaining what you've built in an unsustainable world. Fear of crumbling families. Fear of our kids entering into a confusing and unkind world. What song are you singing over your heart and over your life and over your kid's life? Is it an ominous song of anxiety and fear and despair? Or is it a new song of God's redemption, of his conquering of sin and death? Is it a song of God's reordering of all the broken things in this world and in your own life? Is it a song of love and allegiance to King Jesus? We didn't really have space to print everything that happens in Acts 26 and how Agrippa and Festus decide to respond to what Paul has said to them. In verse 24 here, Festus thinks that Paul is mad. Why does he think that? I think it's because Paul insists that his religious beliefs on the idea of Jesus' resurrection are hope and truth, not just for the small Jewish sect, but for the Gentiles, like Festus himself, and for the whole world. It offends Festus that Paul is making a claim on Festus's own life. And Agrippa himself is put on the spot by Paul, and he artfully dodges like the clever politician that he is. It's not printed for you, but in verses 30 through 32 of Acts 26, Festus and Agrippa leave, and they privately talk about everything that Paul has just said to them. And all that they are concerned about in the end is the legality of Paul's position. Whether or not what Paul has said means that he deserves to be in prison or he should be released. All they care about is the political ramifications, the realpolitik. They're presented with the God who is reordering the world and calling to them and yet they can't get beyond the events of the moment of the day. Their eyes are firmly fixed on the earth, and they cannot see that heaven is calling to them. In other words, they could not hear the new song. My friends, in Luke 24, in our gospel reading, when Jesus ascends into heaven, what do the disciples do? In verse 52, it says they returned with what? Great joy. They went to the temple and worshiped and blessed God. What does it mean to bless God? To sing praises and songs, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. They were filled with hope and joy. Many of these same people would be martyred and killed and sent across the world. And yet they knew some of that was coming. But they knew that the world ahead, because of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, is not ultimately bitterness and loss and death or disease. Even if that was their present moment, even if that is our present moment, they knew what Isaiah 42 said, that the former things, these are all the former things that are passing away, that the world ahead is a world that belongs to the resurrected Jesus, who has already confronted the powers of sin and death and the powers of this world, who has already established a sure future. He is the one who brings good out of bad, life out of death, light out of darkness, who has a message for the great and small because he is king over everything. This is the future. He is the future. He is the unavoidable conclusion. So let us sing a new song. 
Let us rearrange our understanding of the events around our life. Let us enter into the inevitable conflicts that we will have with the powers of this world in quiet, joyful confidence that God is on his throne, Jesus is returning, and he will put all things right. You play with me. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would make us men and women of true faith who can see beyond our present circumstances, beyond the conflicts that we are experiencing, beyond a world that in many ways is falling apart, knowing that you are bringing to an end all the old ways of doing things, that you are even now continuing to remake, restore, and renew our world, that we might have faith to be confident as we proclaim your gospel and stand on your mission until you bring apart, bring to us the new heavens and the new earth. In Christ's name, amen.